the completed, completed. Have you finished well, your patio? I, I, I've not, well, you think, I had an existing patio. I've extended it okay. to incorporate a fountain. That's the whole point we did this because we wanted the fountain base because it was just standing on the grass and nearly falling over and crushing prim. So I extended. <laughs> yeah. Do you mean you have annexed somebody else's patio? Like no. Like as if somebody else's patio is Poland. And I've gone storming in there like Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> that's not, what I'm asking. Not really. No, I, I didn't do it. It's still our own grounds. Are I you the Woodford Hitler? For, no, I'm not. <laughs> no, doesn't matter what people say about me. Mussolini, fair enough, but Hitler's just a step too far. But no, I've just pushed out into the garden a bit more, took up some of the edging stones, bought some more, continued them around, extended the patio out for two and a half square meters, and plonked the old uh, fountain on it. The only problem was when I put the fountain on, it leaked. Oh, come on. Then I had to silicon to make sure it was all yeah. watertight before it would work. So the patio wasn't the problem. It was eventually the fountain. Crazy. Did you, did you get what your sort of Indian stone? Yes, I went to a place in Bolton. And absolutely. I don't know whether I can give them a shout out. I don't know whether that's acceptable. But they I don't know whether you should be advertising sponsor. the fact you've been to Bolton. Uh, <laughs> Essential journeys only. The car, I kept the car running, clearly. Uh, but it was a top place with everything conceivable you need for kind of landscaping and just basically help yourself yeah you said you're going to take 10 so i took 10 so they're just they're just really good really good place just so we're all clear next week when chinch is in prison for having broken lockdown no you can't go to prison for i didn't actually steal two extra pieces of limestone they they fell into the car completely by accident (laughs) just out of interest this this stat this this um this fountain what sort of shape does it take? Is it is it you as a urinating cherub casting uh, marble? Is that, is that what you've gone for? Is that the kind of thing you would expect me to have? I would expect so you would to have a, to have a, a fountain featuring a statue that was of your naked body. Yes. Uh, I, you no. do live in Cheshire, Chinch. I, I exactly. do, but no, no. It's just basically a two-tier system: larger on the bottom, smaller on the top. Bit like me, and it just spurts out the top bit like me and refills itself and makes a lovely gurgling sound and makes you want to go to the toilet. Uh, this is Set Piece Many, the podcast where four friends in lockdown talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Rory Smith, Uno, Stephen Wyeth, Doss and Andy Hinchcliffe. Siete. Uh, the food is who is providing us with food today? Well, I mean, you said to take a picture, but I had some parsnip soup, so it wouldn't have made, we wouldn't have made, made a great piece of art, so I okay, didn't take so a picture. Rory's out with parsnip soup. Um, Chinch, what, you, you sent a message saying that lunch is for wimps. Yeah, well, I don't know how pitters work. So basically, what I did was I just took a pitter, buttered it, put peanut butter on it and ate it. I don't know how to open a pitter up, so I just basically used it as if it was a piece of bread. And that was my lunch. That is and extraordinary. It, yeah, delicious, though. Delicious. No. No, good. No, it was good. No. Seriously good. Stephen will have had eggs. Yeah, I, I, I had eggs, poached eggs, leftover chicken from the Weagles, spinach. Well, we'll decide on uh, whose food is most photogenic and maybe put that uh, on Twitter. I might put my dinner on if none of you come up with anything particularly attractive. Um, the football chinch is, do you know what we're talking about today? Oh, something about football that's incredibly topical. Topical and important. We wanted to spend some time considering this very question. Premier League, what are you doing? This, I think, now counts as a recurring theme. As back in episode 14, we asked referees, what are they doing? And in true SPM joined up thinking, we're bringing that particular sentence construction back about three and a half years later, which is fitting because that's about the same amount of time we might be waiting for the Premier League to come together with a plan for restarting amid the coronavirus pandemic. So we are asking today, Premier League, what are you doing? Uh, you can get in touch with the podcast via email at setpiecemenu uh, at gmail.com and also Twitter and Facebook 
have many interesting things upon it. Andrew Watts Morgan sent a very thoughtful email about the coronavirus pandemic, which had a lot more worth mentioning than just two things, but I am only going to mention two things here. The first was this paragraph. Totally agree with Rory, which is a paragraph that starts well, I think at least a quarter of the group would agree, uh, that it is not wrong for people to miss football and wonder when it will come back after the pandemic. However, some of the media seem to be doing their best Helen Lovejoy impression. Can anybody understand the Helen Lovejoy reference? Fans of The Simpsons will. Can you remember? She oh, said, yeah. Will somebody please think of the children? Uh, and he thinks that the media are very much doing that. So I wanted to get that out there because that's an excellent reference. And the second uh, was this manager most likely to, the latest entrant into our series of managers most likely to, where the answer is not Sean Dice, Graham Potter or Nigel Pearson. Manager most likely to be bulk buying hair product online, Mikel Arteta. And Andrew says, seriously, that head of hair is magnificent. But I don't know if it needs maintenance. It just, do you think it just stays there? I think it just sort of sits yeah. there. Yeah. Mm. I don't, I don't think he does anything to it. I think I'm even more jealous of Mikel Arteta than I was previously. He's a very... What are those, what are those kids' toys where you can just like pop hats on them and stuff like that? Is there a, Lego. Like a brand? Or, no, it's not Lego. Is it something else? It's something else. It's another brand. And his hair is like that because it basically... Oh, Playmobil. Playmobil. Yeah. He is a Playmobil head coach. Because his hair, it never grows. It never moves. It's just solid. Solid. Yeah, he's, he's manager most in need of the services of an underground hairdresser during quarantine, Mikel Arteta. <laughs> do, we, do we think Mikel Arteta is handsome? Yes. Swarthy. Yeah. Swarthy. Well, I would say that the handsomeness of most gentlemen is in their eyes. And Mikel okay. Arteta has beguiling eyes. He does, that's true. Not he, the kind that you might, for example, be able to swim in but uh, those that might be able to pierce into your very soul. It feels to me as though Mikel Arteta ought to be handsome and everything is there for him to be handsome. But for some reason, he just slightly falls short of actually being handsome. Can you put your hand or indeed your finger upon what it is that is lacking? Height? <sighs> no, 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 it's not that. I think it's... Height. Is it to do with a certain... <laughs> well, it's, you know, some, 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 some people have a, a height threshold for, for attractiveness. Rory is, is saying that the individual parts... All, all, all perfect. Yeah, all for great. some reason, once you bring them all together, it's a bit of a jumbling mess. Is he slightly vulpine? Yeah, if you, if you let him go wild, he would just be a ball of hair, wouldn't he? Mm. he it just looked like the Tasmanian devil. I do I, feel like he has face. sharp, sharp nasal features yeah there's might, a sharpness to his there features there needs to be a softening perhaps yeah yeah uh, but apart from that Mikel, you get our vote hottie uh errol opal has got in touch about our <laughs> spm draft from two episodes ago hello rory and friends long time listener first time emailer i wanted to get in touch having listened to your draft episode i was surprised to hear most teams picking their attackers first since although there are considerations with balance and style of play etc i think it wouldn't really matter if you have messi or guero or salah or azar or a number of the other attackers on the list because essentially they're all world-class attackers and they are they are all going to get you goals i think the balance in midfield and center back should have been the priority and after that the worst position you could have found yourself in would have been oh dear i'm stuck with suarez kane and mané up front having seen the final teams the inclusions of the likes of Isco, who was unable to get into his own club's 11. Ericsson, whose Spurs were actively trying to sell in the sum but could not find a buyer at a decent price and had to hold on for an extra six months. And Goodine, who Inter have reportedly decided to get rid of halfway through his first season, was baffling. Love the pod. Keep up the good work. That's Errol from Cambridge. So criticisms by way of everybody else apart from Chinch um, from Errol. Yeah, I mean, I think we can all agree that Steve's midfield was a joke. <laughs> an absolute oh. joke. But Chinch did pick a defender first. Yeah, Chinch, the, the, the number one overall pick was a centre-back. 
And there wasn't Mos- too many complaints about that, though. I didn't see my people pick was rushing in saying, "Oh my God, what on earth are you doing?" People thought there's a plan there. So two no, of the first three, doing. two of the first three picks were defenders. Yeah, but he, we started uh, at the back. There is a there is a germ of a point in that 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 maybe we should all have thought midfield first because actually part of the reason that I didn't think never, too much about defenders never. at the start was just there's quite a lot of good defenders. So you knew, you, you knew as with the tactics, you knew you were getting decent defenders. So how did Steve get such a bad team that he had to put Ericsson, Gadeen in there? And ne- Neymar was one of his main choices. Well, the for, others were just desperation. Fernandinho. He, oh, he picked, was, was Neil Redfern not one of his midfielders? <laughs> yeah, Ian Ormond-Droid on the wing. <laughs> Uh, thank you, Errol. Next to a couple of memories invoked by last week's pod about FIFA and football manager, Adam Bremner writes this, Hugh, Rory, Steve and Andy. Greetings from the COVID-19 epicenter that is New York City and where your pod does provide a great distraction for at least an hour every week. As an aside, I would love to see a version of the pod with video of the Zoom screens released separately on a new YouTube channel, if only to see the palatial estate of Mr. Hinchcliffe and his trophy room slash closet. Um, you're not seeing in my closet there's things in there that uh, the outside world are never going to see as long as you're out of it that's what matters your most recent pod brought back several vivid memories of computer games from my childhood in Sydney Australia in the early 80s my brothers and I saved for months to get a Commodore 64 no disk drive tape deck only which only heightened the anticipation as we waited 30 minutes for a game to load up those were the days which games well two come to mind based on your pod the first as mentioned by Steve, Daily Thompson's Decathlon, released 1984. Why? Well, we had just invested in a Mercury joystick. You may remember them, not sure about the safety of such things, which meant that there was no base to it. You just wiggled it in your hand to go left and right. And for DTD, this meant for the 100-meter sprint, you wiggled it very, very, very fast, to the point that you'd win the race in 3.4 seconds. Of course, the joystick would break thereafter, ensuring that your new record would never be beaten or indeed remembered once you turned off the computer. The second, one-on-one, Larry Bird versus Dr. J, uh, released 1983. Why? It was our first introduction to the NBA. Who were these players? We had no freaking clue, but boy, was it a great game to play. And at this point, there was zero NBA coverage in Australia. The ultimate example of computer games introducing new players, teams, and even cultures. Ah, the memories. I wonder what our kids will be reminiscing about in 20 years. Hopefully not. When can we go outside again, Daddy? Chins up and thanks for the entertainment. Uh, That is from Adam. What was the date of that decathlon again? 1984? 84 for Daley Thompson's decathlon yeah. and uh, Larry Bird versus Dr. J. Julius Irvin for those uh, who Was Diego Godin involved in that 1984 <laughs> decathlon uh, computer game? No, because he's been around that long, Steve. And Jonathan Harding sent this email. Gents, was inspired by your FIFA FM pod and wanted to get in touch. I too grew up playing various forms of CM slash FM, managing the likes of Kaiserslautern and Brighton. More fun when we were in League One, he says. And most recently, most recently Nigeria to World Cup glory in a thrilling work of fictional football that would make a great soccer story, if I may say so. My query slash concern lies with ratings, and it is one that I wanted to put to you. I can't help but feel there is a very real danger that given the increasingly large impact that FIFA and FM ratings have on player perception, Footballers are seen less and less like human beings. Add to that the remarkably realistic graphics of modern video games and the absence of external factors, aka non-football factors, affecting players in games. I'm concerned that the borders of the two worlds are closer than ever. I like sealing promotion to the second division after a last-minute playoff final win thanks to that sensational Brazilian teenager signed on a free in January as much as the next person. But I fear the rise of professional gaming as well as online competitions pushes the virtual world more and more into our perception of the real game. 
and makes it easier to forget the real game is played by real people. I wonder whether the team has any thoughts on how to combat this and restore some level of human understanding slash recognition in football. Perhaps start the campaign to get Andy into the dugout rather than behind the mic in the stands. Or maybe move Rory into the role of chairman. Hugh and Stephen join the board as well as running the club's media with the combined efforts of all four restoring the balance in the football universe. Thank you for all you do. It is rare that four people have such great rapport and can maintain such excellent conversations. But you all do. And it is a privilege to be able to listen in. Uh, stay safe. Take care. That's from Jonathan Harding. I think that's uh, a chap by the name of Jonathan Harding who lives in Germany and has written an excellent book called Mensch, uh, which is about the rise of German coaching. I think people should buy it. Well, he, he sounds important just with the name of Jonathan Harding. He's a lovely man. He's very, he is a staggeringly tall, and this is not entirely unrelated, handsome man. Um, the Mikel oh, Arteta Mikel to learn, Arteta, yes. to learn a lot from him. Um, I think he's right that 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 kind of numerical assessment of players has increased the sense by which we don't, or the sense in which we don't sort of treat them entirely as human. And I also think it's, it's changed the way we analyse games as fans or as computer literate fans in the sense that you, 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 you almost don't understand why a player that you think of, well, his, his speed rating is 19, so he should be able to do that left back. You, you often kind of watch thinking, well, that, that is a mismatch. And if it doesn't play out as you think it should, as it would in, through an algorithm, you feel as though one of the players has underperformed. I think it has changed, yeah, the way we analyse players' performances, the way we think of players. How you offset it, not entirely sure. It's quite tricky if you're exposed to that world from, you know, the age of, what, eight, seven, eight, nine. I guess people start playing computer games properly and understanding the kind of rating systems. I don't quite... Un- quite know if you can offset that properly but it, it, it's definitely it is definitely a factor i suppose it's would be seen to be a little bit nerdy to go from managing kaiser slauten on football manager to then finding a way to watch their games regularly you might develop an interest in football or soccer as a whole from playing fifa or football manager but whether or not that extends to your your love of or interest in the clubs you've encountered in those games in real life because if you were watching those teams in real life as well as playing as them on fifa you might learn to understand the nuances between what a, a rating on fifa is compared to what actually playing in real life is like it's becoming more and more evident that we're grateful that chinch didn't uh grow up a little bit later on and have his career uh, more in the present because the only numbers that he was concerned about during a game were of course numbers 32 egg fried rice number 47 <laughs> sweet and sour chicken balls and uh, thank you jonathan uh, our buffalo slot is occupied this week by chris Orr, our most recent buffalo him of the myriad spreadsheets you'll remember chris says love sbm's 177's out of context Camus." i would suggest chinch consider Love in the Time of Cholera by Colombian Nobel Prize winning author Gabriel García Márquez, although he's probably, he's it's Gabriel García Márquez, isn't he? As a literary title, more fitting, a pandemic. I believe there's some sexy bits in there too, Chinch, for you to sink your oratorical teeth into. Or Love in the Time of Chlamydia, did you say? Cholera. Cholera, cholera sorry, cholera, sorry, yeah. yeah. It's not or, so bad then. Or perhaps, says Chris, Garcia Marquez's 1983 work, The Oath, about a match between Barranquilla-based Atletico Junior and Bogotá's Milenarios. Uh, I think it was about qualifying round for that year's third Copa America, not sure, says Chris. Finally, I would have thought introducing out-of-context Camus during the COVID crisis would have featured the Frenchman's 1947 novel, The Plague. 
rather than the outsider, but I spent very little time in 1990s Everton dressing rooms as my family are Reds, so perhaps I didn't understand. Uh, Chris Orr, uh, who says, tall and half-scouse, Chicago, Illinois. Thank you, uh, Chris. So setpiecemenu at gmail.com if you have any suggestions of COVID-related readings that Chinch could perhaps, from any part of uh, literary history, uh, read out on the podcast. So this week, we are asking this question. Premier League, what are you doing? It has been something of an intensifying frustration over the last few weeks that the Premier League has been unable to take many of the more sure-footed steps seen in other leagues, particularly around Europe, in its efforts to plan a possible restart amid the coronavirus pandemic. There seems to have been an inability to bring those invested in the English elite game together to forge a path forward in these particularly unprecedented times. Most of you will know the competing priorities of those stakeholders, a rather clinical term and a notably emotional time, and how that seems to be derailing any of the Premier League's attempts to fix this problem. Clubs want money, are losing money, are scared of losing more money. Broadcasters have paid money, will insist on getting some of that money back if deals are not fulfilled. Players worried about their health because their money's okay. Fans, well, that depends and that's the problem. And also the football medical community and police, they have all expressed concerns either with plan A or indeed any plan that has been mooted thereafter. So while we're rather glibly outlining the difficulty of the task at hand and adding in the caveat that the UK is not in the same health situation as other countries, why is there a feeling that the league isn't really capable of getting out of its own way. Premier League, what are you doing? It has been a fairly colossal mess, hasn't it? Really. <laughs> it's quite it's quite remarkable. It it, it does it, it does um reflect Britain's whole response to it, just the kind of muddled thinking, the factual infighting, the massive division. But it is a it, it has been a really strange um it's it, it has been a really dispiriting sight to see as for the whatever the rights and wrongs of what the French have done and whatever the Germans have done and the Spanish have done and the Italians have done, it is it has been really dispiriting to see that we are, as we record, I think eight weeks in to to lockdown. So nine weeks in since we last kicked the ball in the Premier League. And I, I still couldn't tell you exactly what is going to happen. And it seems odd that they don't even have a plan for what they'd like to happen pending the situation improving, which everything's dependent on. And that I think is it's fairly damning of the Premier League and it's really dangerous to the Premier League. I think the Premier League is now at a, a fairly crucial juncture in its history. And if it doesn't sort itself in this situation out relatively quickly, it might have a real problem. Was I fair in saying that the Premier League have a difficult situation uh, to resolve because of all those participants and uh, the, the, the Premier League as a homogenous whole is not necessarily able to separate itself from those who participate within it? Or are we saying that it is the Premier League's job to bring all those participants together and therefore laying blame at their door and not necessarily individual clubs with individual aspirations and individual priorities? I think that's it's quite a surprising element of it is that they've not managed to get out in front of the situation and control the various sort of streams of narrative that seem to be coming from different clubs about what should or shouldn't be done. The Premier League, over the course of the last 25 years, has demonstrated that it's generally been good at making decisions that benefit both the Premier League and the clubs that play in the Premier League. However, for some reason, in terms of... It's been understandable that they've been cautious about what they have said publicly and in terms of what little they have said has not really changed much over the course of the, the last seven or eight weeks. They are waiting on guidance from the government as to when they can, if they can restart. But it has seemed extraordinary that they've not been able to, to keep the, the clubs on a tighter leash or a shorter leash 
to stop all those varying bits of miscommunication from coming out. I think what Steve touches on there is absolutely right. So the Premier League's growth over the last 20, 28 years is basically because the model works for the Premier League. And the model works perfectly when the interests of the league as a whole can be aligned to the interests of the clubs individually. And as a rule, the clubs individually accept that a rising tide lifts all boats. So it works. So the Premier League thinks what's good for the big teams will also lift the small teams. Uh, and the small teams buy into that and the big teams are happy to take the small teams along with them. And it's worked brilliantly. The Premier League as a thing doesn't really exist other than as a kind of private members club for the 20 teams who, who happen to be in it any one time. The Premier League is, is, they've always said they're ownership neutral, but the truth is the Premier League is everything neutral. The Premier League itself doesn't often have an opinion on anything. It doesn't have anything that it wants to achieve. It's just a kind of broader collective intelligence of the 20 clubs. So the 20 clubs decide what's good for them. The Premier League enacts it. And as a rule, under this model, if you accept the, the, the tenets of this model as being the barometer of success and failure, the Premier League has always succeeded because what's good for the clubs is good for the Premier League. The problem now is that what's good for the clubs varies from club to club. And that's where the schism has appeared. And the Premier League itself as an institution can't do anything about that because it is neutral. The Premier League doesn't have the, the ability really to say to the clubs, we need you to put, come in this direction because it's used to functioning basically as as a platform by which the clubs express their own self-interest. And the contrast, I think, is with Germany and Spain, where the, the league, the DFL in Germany and whatever the Spanish league is called, isn't just the top flight. It's basically the whole, not professional game, but it's kind of the whole elite game. So when Javier Tabas says something, he means not just La Liga, he means La Liga Smart Bank, which is Division 2. When Christian Seifert says something, he means not just the Bundesliga, but Bundesliga Zwei. He, he means all of it. He means the entire elite game. Whereas the Premier League doesn't have anyone in that position because Richard Masters is still relatively new to the role of uh, chief executive. But also that's not really what the Premier League is for. It doesn't have a what an American sport would refer to as a commissioner who can take the clubs with them. The, the Premier League's mood is set by the clubs. And if the clubs don't know what their mood is, the Premier League is basically useless. Surely this situation has been the biggest test of the relationship between the league and the clubs. It seems to me as if the clubs, as Roy was saying, they are more in charge of this situation. I just wondered about the timing. If this had all happened, say, 10 games into the season, not with 10, 9, 10 games to go, would the response from the clubs have been different? Because it seems to me that they're all now panicking about what decisions might be made, who might get relegated seems to be the major issue, who's going who's to play in, in, in Europe. So are the clubs, because of the timing of all this, is this why the clubs are really standing up for what they want? They're not looking at the rest of the other clubs in the league or looking at the league themselves. They're looking, it's their own self-interest which are really coming to play, coming to bear. And is, is it down to timing? If this had happened earlier in the season, would we have had the same reaction from the clubs to the league? I think it, the, the reaction has definitely, is definitely res, responds to the circumstance. So if it had happened after 10 games, I think there would have been a much broader consensus, not necessarily to cancel the season, but just to wait, and just to wait for as long as possible to, to find some sort of solution. And, and at that point, they might have said, right, well, when, when it's safe, we'll play out half a season and that will be all we can do. But equally, if, they'd, if it had happened say, five weeks later, with four games left, I think there would have been a much broader consensus to say, well, look, this is, this is a fair reflection of, yeah, yeah. of where everything's 
where everything would have stood anyway. So there would, it would have been easier to find a kind of points per game or whatever s- solution to it. I think it's, it sounds a bit stupid and obviously ideally it wouldn't have happened at all. But I think it's, it, it, it came a really kind of, kind of maybe the most awkward time because it does feel like you're too far in to, to cancel it or to, to call it. But equally, they, they kind of had enough time to, to respond and say, right, we can find a way of playing it out. But they didn't really have enough time. It's all very tight. So I think it came at a really awkward point because, because it was, enough was resolved that you felt, right, we want to find a solution to this. But not enough was resolved that you could avoid fighting about it. And that, I think, has put all of the leads in, a, in, an, in an invidious position. And what's interesting is that it's only the Premier League, as we stand in the middle of May, that hasn't, st- still really has no idea where it's going. Every other lead has made a decision, literally every other lead, including much smaller leads and leads that generally how, how much are a bit gov- more... How much are the government... Because obviously they say they're responding to the government. If the government's reaction is a little bit wishy-washy and there's been a lot of criticism about how the country's moving forward, does, can the Premier League say, well, actually, we're, we're following... Or should they have been a lot stronger themselves? No, that's, de- that's definitely part of it. There is no question the government's confused response has been part of it. But I think... And I think that excuses what Hugh touches on, which is the Premier League's kind of non-committal public approach, which I, th- I think is understandable. So it's buying them some time, maybe. But again, you've got to make good use of that but time the, and come up with an answer. Yeah. And the problem, the problem there is because the clubs can't agree on anything and because they all... You've seen it time and time again, that chief exec, the chief executives of the, of the clubs that are kind of putting obstacles in the way of, of restarting, which may, may well be a completely valid thing to do. That These are all legitimate concerns, player welfare, the doctor's concerns, all that stuff. That, these are all legitimate things to talk about. They, Paul Barber at Brighton said it on the radio a couple of weeks ago when he was on the Monday Night Club with Ian Wright, Chris Sutton and, and someone. Um, and I think Chappers. Scott, Scott Dutch Chappers. <laughs> yeah, Ch- Chappers, he's excellent. And I think Scott Dutchbury said it in the Times this, this last weekend. That they they see their job as representing the interest of their clubs, but that isn't their job. Not in not in a circumstance like this. It might that might be their job in normal circumstances. Their job now is to represent the interest of their clubs, whilst being aware that the ultimate best interest of their club is the best interest of the Premier League and the health of football as a whole. And I don't think I, I hate. I hate it when you sort of get into the territory that you're trying to telling people how to do their jobs when you've never done their jobs, you shouldn't do it. But it strikes me that that is a fairly major sort of psychological, philosophical failing that basically banjaxes the meetings before they've begun because they all think our job now is to go and, and shout and scream and get what we want. But that should all be subsumed by the idea that you need the game to be healthy as a whole and the lead to be healthy as a whole. Otherwise, your club will lose regardless. Which is ties into how I'm a little bit surprised that the Premier League hasn't got out in front of it to to get some of those messages across in the in the public to make football fans aware of what their thinking thinking might be in terms of that regard, how they might spread the wealth a little bit further than they have done in the past to perhaps pacify some of those teams who were involved in the relegation fight. And the Premier League is also a, a picking up on something else Rory mentioned victim of circumstances in terms of the number, not just the number of teams that is still at such a late stage of the season involved in the relegation situation, but how much five of those six teams could all make a compelling reason for why they won't be relegated. It's only really Norwich 
who you would say, well, they're probably a little bit too far adrift to make a strong argument towards their survival. Because certainly the bottom two this season, if the season is played out, will finish with significantly more points than the bottom two did last season. And of course, these, these clubs have all crunched the numbers in terms of, well, the amount of money that would need to be handed back in the event of an uncompleted season, our share of that would be significantly less than what we would lose if we were relegated. And in the case of a team like West Ham, who were very early out of the blocks in terms of calling for a null and void season, they would have crunched the numbers and realised that, yeah, if you worked out on the points per game to decide the season, they would survive. If you worked it out on points per game, home versus away, they would be the big losers. They would be the team that dropped into the bottom three if you worked it out using that equation. So they're all very savvy in terms of, well, what do we stand to lose here? And that's why you're getting so many different messages. The amount of money that uh, I think the, the Premier League clubs would have to give back is £762 million to broadcasters. So that, that is an amount of money that they have realised their share of that might be less than any yeah, uh, exactly. that they would be penalised if, if they got relegated. I think they, they could have made the conversations easier, like Steve says, if they'd come out early on and said... So the, the, the meeting they last had, which was on Monday, uh, the te- 11th of May, that was the first time they discussed how they might curtail the season. And the FA, which has a golden share, and can, because the FA has to bind together the relationship between the Premier League and the rest of the pyramid, the FA came out and said, look, you aren't voiding this. You're not, this is, null and void is not an option, because that, that would mean no relegation, which means no promotion, which effectively defines the EFL's rules of competition, which is not in the Premier League. They, they don't have the right to do that, effectively. I think if the Premier League had come out two months ago and said, if we can't complete the season, this is how we will do it, you might have focused minds a bit. I, I know that this isn't true of, of the clubs themselves, because I don't think it's a factor at all. But certainly in public, there's been a remarkable focus on Liverpool and what will happen to the title. When in reality, that has always been the really easy bit, because Liverpool are champions. Whatever happens, Liverpool would be voted champions or they'd be awarded the title as happened to PSG in in France and Bruges in Belgium if the Premier League had come out early on and said look we are not going to say this season didn't happen then I think that might a have had the function of calming quite a lot of the noise around the story down but also focusing a few minds because down at the bottom that would have meant the clubs couldn't the six, Steve's right, part of the problem is the numbers. If there, were, if there were three teams adrift, it wouldn't have been an issue. If there were four teams adrift, it wouldn't have been an issue. The, the, the majority would have held sway. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't remember, sorry, we shouldn't forget that, that all of this is about money. And the reason it's about money is because it doesn't work. The 762 million doesn't break down as 40 million quid each. It's related to how often you've been on television or how often you were scheduled to be on television, which means Liverpool and Man United would have to pay about 100 million quid back whereas, say, Norwich would only pay 25. What, Nor- what the bottom six are effectively doing is, as you say, they've worked out how much they stand to lose and how much they stand to gain from being in the Premier League. They're asking the rest of the league to pay money that they, shouldn't, that they won't have to pay. They are saying, West Ham mm. are effectively saying to Manchester City, you pay 100 million quid and we'll only pay, only pay 20 instead of us paying 40 and you paying nothing, or us losing access to 60 and you paying nothing. So it's not a surprise that the other clubs are res- resistant to that. If the Premier League had come out early and said, 
we can't pretend this season didn't happen, which I think is would be the worst of all possible outcomes for a lot for lots of different reasons that we might come on to, we might not. Then that might have focused minds and prevented that little power block developing, because what a lot of them are clearly clinging on to is the idea that at some point they might say, right, we can't sort this out, so the season the season didn't happen. This is null and void, not a problem. Let's start again whenever we can with the same lineup. If that had been taken off the table early, I think it might not have been such a, te- a tortured sort of process. Which is why you control the bits of the narrative that you can. This stuff about playing in, in neutral venues, that was a difficult one for the Premier League because that came from the government's. Now, the Premier League could have immediately told the government, well, that's not going to be popular and clubs will rally against that for all sorts of reasons. But this thing, for example, about relegation not happening, being taken off the table, by all accounts, was mentioned in passing within a meeting and immediately dismissed. Yet it was allowed to run and run and run in all bits of the media. For day, and it still is. It's still something that's being talked about weeks after it should have just been completely thrown aside. Because you can't have... Everybody seems to feel as though there should still be promotion from the championship and that the top two, the current top two, should come up. Well, you can't have promotion if you don't have relegation. It's yin and yang. One is a consequence of another. So Rory's right. That sort of thing should have been nipped in the bud straight away. The, we should say the extended the extended Premier League, in, in other words, bring, bringing two up or three up and not relegating anybody. Uh, the Athletic, uh, many of you would have seen, had a supporters survey. That was the most popular amongst fans resolution to this. So even though we have been saying both on air and off air about the ridiculous nature of having no competition, i.e. no relegation, having no jeopardy related to any of these results. So why, why do you have them in the first place? If, if having no relegation is popular with fans, do we consider consider them to be just as self-serving because the majority of those fans who would have <laughs> who would have voted might have been fans of those clubs who are at least kind of flirting with the precipice. So if that, if that is the case from Championship to the Premier League, from, from League One to the Championship, League Two to League One, does that all, all happen down the chain then? No relegation and you move teams up to make expanded leagues all the way through the leagues? Is that what we're saying here? Well, I suppose you'd have to, wouldn't you? Because that's the only fair way. You can't say, well, Leeds, West Brom, well, no, no. and A yeah, another you'd... go up, but the League One yeah. top three or whatever it is, you, you stay where to... you are. Well, you... hang on a minute. What's, what's the EFL, isn't it? You wouldn't, you wouldn't have to expand the Leeds, though, because if, if two went up from the Premier League, from the Championship to the Premier League, but none came down, then two to dork from Lead One to the Championship, 24 teams, two to dork from Lead, lead Two to Lead One, or even three because Berry's position is empty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you could then promote, Bar- promote Barrow and another two from the conference into, into League Two. So I think that has some merit. The problem with that plan, I, if they're going to remove relegation, there's no point playing the games. They might as well say, look, yeah. we'll call it on points per game or as it stands effectively, no relegation, we'll promote Leeds and West Brom. I think you can get away with not promoting three from the championship just because the playoffs are such a, a lottery anyway. But there's, no, how, there's no but point playing games without jeopardy. No point how? at all. But that has two problems. One of which is that they have to hand back 762 million quid. And the other is how on, how on earth are they going to fit in a 42-game season, net season, when we might have all the lockdowns? But I would argue with the fact that you could promote two teams from the championship rather than three. Because at the start of the season, three teams come up from the championship. Any yep. team currently in playoff contention could make the argument that you have deprived of deprived us of our opportunity to win the lottery and if we go back to the point in the season where it stopped 12 months ago Aston Villa 
weren't in the playoff places, well outside of it. They had a late season surge, snuck into the playoffs right at the very end, and then ultimately were promoted via the playoffs. So you could go right down to seventh, eighth, ninth in the championship, and any one of those clubs could claim that they could have been promoted. So I don't see that you can have two teams promoted from the championship and not three, because those were the rules at the start of the season. Blackburn in 10th would, uh, would lay claim to being the, the, the kind of the end of that that kind of extra bit, if you like, of those in contention. So if, you, if you're considering third to 10th, there is six points between second and third. So in this trying to find the least worst outcome, using things like that to help make a decision between West Brom and Fulham, 70 points to 64, you might say, there might be a consensus that that's enough of a gap to say, well, let's just do two because those two are far enough away. All these, as Rory has written, are completely imperfect. But if you are going to try and find some sort of consensus, things like being six points between second and third might have to be enough. But then, Hugh, to bring that back to the relegation situation, if you're saying Leeds, seven points above third in the championship, are comfortable enough to be promoted from that position, then you have to say that Norwich, six points from safety in the Premier League, have to be relegated under, under the same sort of equation. You, you can't have one without the other. There is a solution to this, you know, and it hadn't occurred to me, but we could promote 10 teams and relegate none go to an Argentine-style 30-team division <laughs> where everybody plays each other once, which means you have a shorter season next season when you might not be able to, be able to get 38 and certainly not get 42 games in, uh, with the, the drawback being that 13 teams are relegated. <laughs> Let's do that. <laughs> Although in, in a world of no Wilson. relegation, trying to make it 0-13 to 13 might be hard. But there, 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 is a, there is a sense here, just in this conversation that we're having, of how difficult it is to try and forge a path forward because there are so many not only competing priorities, but there are also so many different ideas about how to, um, how to find an outcome. And if you have so many ideas, what do you need, Rory? You need Rory Smith's idea about <laughs> running, running January to... No, he's pointing at himself aggressively. But what you need, Rory, surely, is either somebody to make a ruling, to have a strong voice, to say, this is the decision, and I'm sorry if there are those people who don't like it. Tough. Is that something that hasn't happened because of all sorts of legal ramifications and a fear that they will send themselves down a path which, frankly, will be a very, very ugly one with all sorts of litigation? What you need most of all is a clear conversation, and that's what we haven't had. I upset some, some of my colleagues in, the, in, the, in Her Majesty's Press the other day by suggesting it had been a very noisy... In Her Majesty's prison. In Her Majesty's <laughs> Press. Where none of them are, thankfully. They don't, they don't belong there and they wouldn't survive. But the, Any more trips to Bolton for patio <laughs> paving? The, um, then you'll be able to tell us all about that, Chief. The, um, the, the, I think the problem's been that... And you've actually seen this in, in, in the broader political sphere. And this, isn't, this is not meant as a dig at journalists. I want to make that abundantly clear. But... So you know those press conferences that Johnson does every, every night or the announcement on Sunday of, of what he was doing? A lot, of, a lot of further information comes out on Robert Peston's Twitter feed, who, for those who don't know, is a, is a political journalist for one of the TV stations here. That's not a brilliant way to communicate with the public at a time of global, of global crisis. What you, what, what you need is information that is freely available to everybody right at the start. There, were quite, there was quite a lot of information presented in various kind of Telegraph opinion pieces. The Telegraph is paywalled, both online and obviously it's paywalled in print, because you've got to pay for it. This is information that the entire public needs. It should not be charged for, and it should not be briefed 
sort of anonymously to individual journalists. It's not normal lobby rules don't apply. You sh- you have to be giving all of this stuff out, ideally publicly and definitely on the record. Just to very quickly on that, the the bigger problem in that situation is that the information that was leaked or or was given off the record to those journalists who printed it was the kind of information which wasn't actually that helpful. You can have a picnic. Yeah. You can have an extra moment of exercise a day. Well, it, it, and all, all the stuff that we actually needed, you're right, came out in an even more obtuse way. It's, it, it was all very unclear. So Johnson gave this, I don't, I don't want to get bogged down in British politics, because I'm conscious that we're not, we, we're, not that, we're not that kind of podcast. But Johnson gave this speech, and then within a couple of hours, you had all this other information that they hadn't thought to mention. So the, the really important one was that you are, are now in Britain from Wednesday allowed to, to see one member of your family who doesn't live in your household but only one. So I, I can go and see my mum, but I can't see my dad, which to be honest, isn't much of a shame because he doesn't like seeing me anyway. But he, <laughs> he's, he's relieved about that. Um, but they didn't mention that it, in, the, in the actual announcement. I think it emerged finally when, when they published their 50-page guideline. The first mention of that was on Robert Peston's Twitter feed. And you're a bit like, well, this is not the appropriate way to disseminate this information. And the same thing, the same briefing culture has, has hamstrung the Premier League. Now, the journalists aren't at fault because the journalists are just doing their job. They're calling people and asking questions and getting answers then publishing the information. That's what journalists do. But in this kind of scenario, I think it's really important not only that people don't, aren't given a free pass to be quoted anon- anonymously, which a lot of outlets have done, because in this situation, you need to inter- the public have a right to interrogate why someone is saying something, not just that something is being said. But also, you need it presented clearly, concisely, and universally, effectively, by a central authority. In, within football, this isn't as serious as it is in politics. There was a story a couple of weeks ago that, that players, that, that the entire Premier League season might be played out in Perth, in Australia. Did you, did you happen to see yeah. that one? Yes. So that was basically one guy went on TV and said, well, they, they can all bloody come to Perth. And that's actually he's got a he's got a Brummie accent because the agent was from Birmingham. Was originally. that South African or was that, that was definitely <laughs> Australian? <laughs> oh, was it? Yeah. Convincing so, Australian. So yeah, you yeah. Could do yeah. do the, it in a, a heavy, heavy West Midlands Brummie for me. Can't, instead. can't do Brummie. Uh, the it's impossible to hang on. They can all bloody... No, I can't do from um, <laughs> That's not bad. They can all bloody come over here then. But that, that was just one guy saying... That was, that was the same as me saying, well, they can, why don't we just all play it in the Dales? And it's, it, had, it carried no more authority than that. But because it's the whole thing we've got used to as a football public of reading different sort of anonymized or different kind of random quotes from different people in different places, that has now passed into the conversation where that is a, fe- a possible thing. It's the same with, with, with no relegation. That's not really ever been on the table. But because there has been no clear leadership where these things are said publicly and there is a, effectively a spokesperson for the league, as there is in Spain with Tebas, as there is in Germany with Seifert, giving the league's actual position, you get this morass of misinformation. And I think that's been a real, that, that briefing culture has genuinely been a real problem. Again, the journalists are just doing their job or what they perceive as their job. I think personally, and it's a, a conversation that I'll, I would have with other journalists, it's quite boring, that maybe the rules change a little bit in situations like this and you have more right to say, look, you can't be on the record for this. You can't, sorry, you can't be off the record for this. But ultimately the failing lies with the people in power who, who need to be talking and are not talking because they've got so used to relying on this briefing culture where everyone's allowed to be off the record all of the time. Not to have a dig at The Athletic, but The Athletic ran a piece on, on kind of the role of agents in the middle of the pandemic. 
And it was all anonymous quotes for stuff like, I've been on the phone a lot and players are very worried. You don't need to be off the record for that stuff. There's no reason to be off the record. That's not what anonymous quotes are for. They're for people who are taking a risk to, to impart sensitive information that, the, that they believe the public needs to know, not people making broad comments to the media. And I think we, we've become too reliant on, in football in particular, and I count myself in this, on anonymizing quotes and giving people that cover that they don't need. In this situation, you need Richard Masters, ideally, to stand up and say, once a week, once a fortnight, I will come out and tell you clearly where we are heading at the moment. And because that hasn't happened, misinformation has sort of swept in to fill the void. And, and he spoke for the first time after that meeting um, on Monday the 11th. And um, said very little. And said very little. Um, but I do remember back at the beginning of the process when lots of leagues, some of them in England, like, for example, the upper tiers of non-league, were making uh, decisions that were considered hasty at the time. The Premier League was actually praised for holding back and letting um the, the the kind of the pandemic develop not necessarily that they had any sort of agency in that uh, but they they were <laughs> they were spending a little bit of time keeping there's it. enough conspiracies out there you <laughs> exactly. don't start, another don't start that it was the premier league they did it because clearly this is a mess that they wanted to be in but there is that, that, that i do remember there being some praise for the premier league for being sensitive and sensible about not necessarily jumping to any conclusions about any possible restart the problem is is that having set that standard they have been keeping it uh, unfortunately to their detriment chinch is there any way that the premier league can actually strong arm the clubs or does everything have to go to a majority vote from the clubs for the league to do anything so just wondering whether the league could have been a lot stronger said this is the decision we're making we've come to a point now we've let things roll we're now at a point where decisions need to make we make the decision you've got to abide by that that's not the case is it the premier league have they involved and listened too much to the clubs and try to think well we can all come to an agreement here rather than being strong and saying this is what we're going to do could that actually happen or could the, the clubs actually say you might want that but if we don't as a majority vote for that it wouldn't go through anyway so how much power does the premier league have over its clubs to make them do what the, the league want them to do there needs to be 14 out of 20 to get any every concept. decision so for, 14 out of 20 to change to, to to make any sort of decisions particularly ones that change uh, so the Premier League are in the hands, in essence, of the clubs. They are, and that comes to what Rory was saying earlier on about they're not necessarily, not only being no voice, and Richard Masters is, is new in the job, and he was also about the 18th choice after everybody else turned it down. That's not necessarily his fault, but he is um, new to the job, so perhaps he's finding his feet. We should give him uh, an opportunity to do that. But in terms of how the league structure works, because the Premier League does sit outside of the what used to be Football League, now EFL, there is a difficulty for the Premier League to, to speak on behalf of everybody else. And so, Rory, it's not just the name, the person, it is the fact that the Premier League is not the league, the league in England, as it is elsewhere, because of that decision which was made back in 1992, part of which was to say 14 out of 20 clubs have to vote for something to make any sort of changes. But also it's that the, the Premier League isn't a thing it's not a set thing it's a it's a it's a rotating cast made up by its 20 members and i think that puts it in a really difficult position because as i say it doesn't the premier league doesn't have a view on stuff it's literally just the the interest of the of 14 of the 20 clubs i thought there was a brilliant line in i think it was something sam wallace wrote in the telegraph that that brighton Behind a paywall both online and also in your newsstands not if you're <laughs> if you click a link on your phone and before the page completes loading click x then the, apparently is not a paywall on the telegraph. oh excellent thank you good it's, advice it's 2020 everybody come on be serious <laughs> the the um the i think it was something that sam wrote that brighton were basically saying that if the neutral venues plan got pushed through 
they 14 to 6 they might not accept it and you think well that literally is not how this works that you can't you know that that is denying the rightful prime minister that's saying that you don't agree with the vote so you, you know you're gonna you're gonna stay in office that that's not that's really that's that's really not how it's meant to work. That you you don't get something you like. You, you don't get what you want, so you get to turn it down. Um, and that's the problem with the Premier League that it or the Premier League's model in this situation that if the interests of the clubs are not aligned, there's nothing the league can do because it can't speak with a unified voice. They are also slightly obsessed with consensus, which I think is a problem. That they've they've been trying and trying and trying to get everybody on board, and the likelihood is you're not going to get everybody on board because we've not had, had to have this conversation. But say there was a, a 14 club or a 13, 13 clubs were happy with the season being voided. Just didn't happen. Let's pretend we, we, it was all a dream. Let's crack on with, with, um, with 2020, 21. Or 19 apart from Liverpool. Well, no, because the thing <laughs> is that obviously Liverpool wouldn't be happy, but Leicester wouldn't be happy. They'd miss out on the Champions League. Sheffield United and Wolves might miss out on Europe. There'd be teams like Burnley and Palace who, who can't afford to give the money back. You'd have sort of seven or eight who were really keen for it to be played on. Man City, maybe. Man United could have got back in the Champions League, all that stuff. If that had gone to a vote, if that was the conversation we were having, you'd be in exactly the same situation because the the... The, the clubs are split. The club's interests are completely different. There, is not, there isn't a majority for voiding the season. So even if that was what, you know, what everyone else was doing, that's what we were building towards, you'd have a real problem. And I think that it, it has highlighted that although the Premier League is the most successful domestic league, in situations like this, it's maybe the worst suited to responding to crisis. And again, you've situation where Brighton and Paul Barber can come out in the press and talk about how he sees things from his club's point of view is all well and good, but saying, oh, well, we are, we are opposed to neutral venues. Well, fine, but Brighton are the only team out of the 91 in England's professional leagues at the moment who haven't won a game home or away in 2020. So it does, doesn't really matter where Brighton are playing at the moment. They're not winning. And the difference between the points that are being accumulated at home and points being accumulated away is not vast enough for these clubs to really... I, I, don't think the neutral ven, I don't think the neutral venues solution is the right way to go by any stretch of the imagination. But it's just so strange to hear teams putting their own, putting their own self-interest so much further ahead than the whole that they require to be there in the long term if there is going to continue to be lots of money flushing around in English football. You know, Brighton and Brighton are they are top of the group of six that are threatened by relegation. So you're really exposing your own anxieties if you're the one coming out and saying, no, no, we don't like this, this, we don't like that. Hang on, lads, you should back yourselves. You've already got the points on the board. You probably only need another win or two to, to ensure your survival. So maybe concentrate on that. The, the interesting thing that, about Brighton and Villa, who've been the most vocal, Watford maybe and West Ham have, have, have spoken a lot, but maybe not quite as much as those two, is that Brighton have got the eighth highest net spend in Europe and the 15th in the Premier League. And Villa, I think, have got the... They're in the top 10 for net spend in the Premier League for the last five years and have only been in the Premier League for two of those years. These are two clubs who've made big mistakes in the last, last few years in terms of their spending and therefore really can't afford to go down. And I think that hints at the biggest lesson that, we've, that this kind of teaches us, which is that there is a systemic problem 
with the Premier League and the wealth available to it and the gap between that wealth and the Championship. And funnily enough, simultaneously, the gap between the Championship and League One and League Two. League One and League Two, I think, are a really interesting subject for a further podcast because I think the model, part of the, the part, I, this is yet another tangent, sorry. Part of the problem has been trying to find a holistic solution for everybody, a kind of one-size-fits-all. It doesn't work. You can't pretend that the lead two business model is the same as the Premier League's, and there's no reason the Premier League should have to lose 762 million quid because lead two can't have fans for the next year. It doesn't make any sense. Um, but Villa and Brighton have both got a lot to lose, which is why they're so opposed to everything. They're also not offering solutions. But the, the systemic problem is that, in a way, this is the natural conclusion of the Premier League's race for wealth which is that it is now a football league that is so lucrative to be in, it's actually easier if you don't play football. That there are clubs whose interest is being in the Premier League, but the Premier League not actually being a football league anymore, just being this sort of club you belong to where people give you free money. And I think that is, to an extent, the natural conclusion of a, of a league that has established long ago that you can't afford to drop out of it. So the price that Brighton and Villa and the others are willing to pay for that is that the lead is not played at all. That's a systemic problem in English football that I think this crisis will have to lead us to addressing, that those cliff edges can't exist anymore, that there has to be something done to ease the drop between the tiers, because it really is not healthy. Sorry to bang on about something that I know I mentioned previously, but it all comes back to this. The amount of money that comes into the Premier League, fantastic. But the league and the clubs have got to take better care of how much of that immediately goes straight out the back door. Because if you didn't allow that to happen, there would be a greater safety net for these kind of situations. There's, there's plenty, the Premier League generates plenty of money and certainly enough money to have been able to survive this crisis with a little bit more serenity. But that has simply not happened. Uh, and just to say about Aston Villa, their position on not wanting to play neutral venues is a little bit more understandable compared to Brighton's because they have the best home record out of the bottom six and they have their extra game, their game in hand on the, on the other bottom six sides is at home. So you can kind of see why they would be pushing a little bit more to make sure that they got to play at Villa Park, certainly more so than, than Brighton's desire to, to make sure their games are played at the Amex. West Ham's away record is better than the home record, isn't it? Uh, no, not quite. But they do have the worst home record of the bottom six, which is which is why they. If you if you worked it out on points per game, the table would finish as it was, even with Aston Villa's yeah. game in hand. They, they they because it's two points, they wouldn't have enough to make it up. But if you said right, no, we're going to work it out points per game at home added to two points per game away, West Ham would drop into the bottom three. It's a, it's a sad indictment, though, really, isn't it? If you've got the government saying we want to bring football back for the fans, for a morale boost to the country, and yet we've got clubs who really don't want the football to restart because of the way that they run their business. And it can't just be two. I, I, I probably think you're looking at maybe five or six clubs who would be more than happy for the season to be null and voided and not kick another ball. Do the fans actually appreciate that maybe this is the reason why the, the clubs are talking like they are? Because, again... If you want football out there for the, for the fans and it's the fans' game, yet the clubs are actually saying, you know what, yeah, we'll say that to a degree, but really, internally, we'd be quite happy for football not to be played. It's, yeah, that's bad, a really bad situation to be in. And is that part uh, of the reason why, Chinch, just this week, um, Danny Rose um, 
using an expletive, which is something that I will not repeat on this podcast because I have to edit it and put a bleep in and I can't be bothered. Um, he basically said that whole argument about bringing back football for the morale of the country. He does yeah. not give two hoots uh, about that argument because to him, to somebody who has to be in that environment of perhaps risking their health in order to provide that morale boost uh, for the nation, um, it doesn't necessarily for him uh, marry up in terms of levels yeah. of sacrifice and levels of ability to, to make everybody feel a little bit happier. I must say, I, I would be, I, I will be concerned going back to work to know that everything is is as safe as it could possibly be. I think most people will be in that position. Uh, but I just wonder again, about, we're not really talked about the players, whether the players, as vocal as Danny Rose is and Raheem Sterling's talked about this situation as well, will they actually drive the way that clubs go about and how they talk about the, the rest of the season as well. How, how, big a, how big a players are the players in all this? Or are they just basically, they're not even thought about? Or if you get high profile, well-paid players who are saying, I'm not happy about this at all. Does that actually carry any weight? And will the clubs listen to that and say, well, maybe we've got to reflect that in our conversations with the Premier League? Well, the dehumanising of players is something that we've speak, spoken about a lot in this podcast. We even had an email just earlier on in this show talking about the fact that the ratings that are used on, on FIFA and Football Manager is, is kind of driving a wedge between the human aspect of players and the fact that how they're represented in terms of a number on the page or on a, on a computer screen. So that... I think it was, was it Sergio Aguero, the first person to really come out and say, I'm, I'm yeah. worried or players are worried about coming back too soon or coming back into an environment where they feel that their health has been compromised or could be compromised. The players have been uh, probably at the beginning the quietest, but we should consider how they would feel should we not even more than anything else because we have because they're paid loads of money and that, that is another kind of aspect of the dehumanizing of a player we forget that they're actually going to have to be those people going into that environment and having themselves in that or at those levels of risk that none, none of us would have to. And certainly quite a lot of the people who are making the decisions wouldn't have to be. Either. Yeah. And that's absolutely right. And the players views have to be taken into account. And, and I think to be fair, the Premier League are doing quite a lot to try and uh, assuage a lot of those doubts. They've, they, they will obviously only play when they have a, a protocol in place that minimizes the risk. I think Tyrone Mins uh, tweeted about that risk the other day, of Todd Cantwell has from Norwich. That, that You're right, you don't want to dehumanize players, you don't want to demand that they, that they risk their health to entertain us, they're not gladiators. Um, I think there was a study done that said that, that's been presented actually, it's quite interesting, as only that 75% of the country say that football returning would not boost their morale. Not do you want football back, but would it actually have a material effect on your morale? And that's been taken as proof that football's not that popular. But you think, hang on, there's a quarter of the country whose actual morale would be lifted by this one thing coming back. That's extraordinary. What, what else would, would, could there possibly be that, that, would ha- that would have that effect on 15 million people? That's more than that. My math isn't really good. That's actually, I mean, that, if anything, is testament. Nothing unites more than 50, 25% of the country. The, the one sort of caveat is that when we're talking about them going back and actually playing, does there still, you know, even if, whenever it is, I, I think June the 8th now looks, really, looks quite unrealistic. I think it will be later in June. Well, the tw- the tw- no, the 13th, I think, is the, is the new project. Is that the new target? Date, yeah. The fact is that by that stage, they're talking about shops being reopened, that potentially stools will, some stools will be reopened, that they want all primary school kids to, to have a month in the classroom before, before the summer holidays. So you're thinking, well, actually, I get your concerns, and your concern, the concerns are completely valid. 
but they are exactly the same concerns as everybody else will have at that stage in, in our fa- phased exit from the lockdown. So why, why would football be any different? Why would it expect? We are all going to have to take risks to go back to work. Some of us more than others. But, you know, I mean, even as a journalist, you, which is not the, by, by far not the highest risk category, I will have to make decisions about whether to go and interview people and whether to go out, to go out and actually report from a place rather than just sitting at home. And because that's, that's kind of what the job entails. It, you, you don't just do it all from your house. We, we will all, whatever our jobs, have to make those calls of, our, of how much risk we are prepared to take. And whilst I think it would be wrong to say that footballers should have to take more risk than anybody else, I'm not convinced they should have to take no risk. Because that, that frankly, yeah. isn't really an option for any of us. As we sit here now, we could be 24 hours away from a lot of people in relatively low paid jobs being at the mercy of their employer as to whether or not they are required to go back to work. So it, it seems slightly strange to me that, you know, whatever, you, whoever you are talking about, that a group of people would be rallying against the idea of going back to work in four weeks time, at least sort of full on in four weeks time. And certainly going into an environment where, as, as I read in one of the papers this morning, some footballers are already being tested twice a week. They have the highest possible standard of medical and healthcare available to them within the confines of, of their workplace, which is not something that probably 90, 95% of workers have access to. So yes, you're right. They shouldn't be required. We're always absolutely bang on. They shouldn't be expected to take more risk than anybody else. But the risk that they will be taking will be significantly less than a large majority of the population as and when they do return to work. And we should, this is a really, a really tough, tricky subject to talk about. But we should, we should kind of not ignore the elephant in the room, which is that football is a contact sport. And there's, there's all this stuff about, oh, you can't socially distance at corners. There's not a huge amount of sort of academic study into it, but from all the ones that I have seen, and I think this has been presented to the Premier League, football is very much a contact sport, but the nature of the contact is not, is not inherently infectious. So the WHO's guidance is that you need to spend 15 minutes in close proximity to somebody ordinarily in an enclosed environment, and even if we assume a football pitch is an enclosed environment, to somebody with the virus. To, to sort of absorb enough viral load to get it. That doesn't happen on a football pitch, ultimately. It, it, you, you, you will spend, I think they've worked out, like one and a half, two minutes in close proximity to somebody who is affected. So if you assume that the, that the testing will, will weed out most people who, who have got the virus and that they will then be placed into, into isolation, as the rest of us will be, um, which is what's happened in Germany, that that cases have been found, they've gone into isolation, everybody else has been tested and, and got, got on with it, which again, I'm not saying this is right, but that is the way that a lot of us are going to have to live our lives from now on until there's some sort of medical intervention or a cure or a vaccine. If you assume that that reduces the risk to, a, to, you know, to whatever extent, to X extent, then to Y extent, the risk is reduced by the fact that, that the actual football is not an environment conducive, regularly conducive to spreading viruses. So, I think that these messages, this is the crucial bit, I guess, is that those messages have to be passed to the players who will, will be told, look, yes, it is riskier to go and train and go and play football 
than it is to sit in your house and isolate forever. But that's true of everybody else in the country, everybody else in the world. And the risk that you are taking is is mitigated by these factors. And that hopefully would reassure the players. But if it doesn't reassure certain players or players live with people who are immuno, immuno, immunocompromised, then obviously, as with everybody else, they should have the right to say, I am not comfortable doing this, so I cannot play. And that shouldn't be held against them. Yeah, that evidence that Rory refers to was from a study uh, from a university in Denmark, which Javier Tabaz at La Liga is actually using as evidence or a reason why they might be able to, to restart. And even, I think, that, I think that study even found that amateur footballers are even less at risk than elite footballers because they move less quickly and therefore spend less time in close proximity to teammates and opponents anyway. So, yeah, there does seem to be some evidence that, you know, a football environment compared to the kind of environment that a lot of people will be exposed to is, is, is not that risky. You will note that uh, we have been all about the problems and not necessarily about the solutions on this uh, episode of Set Piece Menu, which I will uh, go on to say that that is entirely our intention. Uh, but if anybody expected us to come up uh, with an answer, you will note uh, the policy that has been followed by many people, which is to keep their counsel until the landscape is a little less shifting. Uh, and so we will uh, no doubt. And, and a lot of people actually have um, have emailed in with sometimes with spreadsheets, uh, giving us an option about what, what might happen and what solution might be taken. Uh, but we'll perhaps do that a little bit later when we're a little bit more sure about how things might play out. And my boss used to say, don't give me problems, just give me solutions. We have done the exact opposite on today's set piece menu. It is time for Nevermind Jack and Ori, what a soccer story. This is when Andy Hitchcliffe tells the tale from his playing all broadcasting days with all adult behaviour and libel-worthy details removed. Um, I'm sure most of our listeners will appreciate that being as I am a global superstar, it, it, it does, it, it opens more doors than it will do. Stop smirking, Rory. Global superstar, that's what I am. It opens doors. That, global superstore. The superstar. <laughs> it opens <laughs> doors. Those, those doors are very much closed at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> into Marche. Yes, for, for normal people. You know, I get, you know, I might have got a portion of my sandstone at a reduced price. These types of things happen <laughs> to celebrities. But this was a, a, an occasion when, it was myself, and I was traveling with a very good friend of mine, Earl Barrett, who I think we've mentioned possibly on the podcast before. We spent a lot of time at three or four different clubs together. And being celebrities actually saved our lives. I'm convinced of that. This was when we were at Sheffield Wednesday. Earl and I had been together at Man City uh, and Everton, and we were playing together. I say playing, we were both basically injured for, for long periods of time, but <laughs> getting well paid. And uh, we were traveling back from Sheffield to Manchester. Now, People probably over in America won't be completely sure what I mean when I say the Woodhead Pass. But just explaining what the Woodhead Pass is, it, it's, a, it's a road, a, a vehicular road um, between Sheffield and Manchester that, that winds its way through the, the Pennine Hills. Stephen, you look like you no. want to say something. No, no, I was just going to say the, the A628 chinch. The A628, yes. if anybody wants to look it up on a map. It's the Peak. The Peak District. Yeah, it's not the Pennines. Is it not? No. There must be a bit of the Pennines in there, just a tiny no. portion, 100 feet peak. of the Pennines. It's the peak slash Pennines. Let's just, let's just say <laughs> it's, it's that, peak. yes? It's but peak. anyway, so we're, we're, we're traveling this, this route, and it's kind of a twisty, turny route. It's lovely. It's a beautiful drive. It, it, it is, but not I prefer the snake the path, path. I prefer the snake pass myself. No, that's... Good passes. Like yeah, anyway, good passes, anyway, anyway can we get back to the story? Prettier. Woodhead Pass. We're on the Woodhead Pass, coming back from Sheffield to Manchester, because we both live in Manchester, so that's why we were driving there. Um, and it can get a little bit fractious a bit fraught on that road because drivers get very impatient with the lorries 
on the road. They want to get past them because they want to get on their, on their way. But it's a very dangerous road to overtake. And if you drive like a lunatic, you could be in big trouble. Now, we were driving, making our way, driving like Miss Daisy, very sensibly, 35 miles an hour, when this, this hothead in a hot rod came storming <laughs> up behind us. And, you know, flashing and beeping, wanting just to get, and you, there are the, the points on the way, well, you can't get out of the way. You can't get out of the way. But eventually he, he, he takes a chance and he overtakes us. And thankfully everything's okay. But we're kind of making, you know, a few hand gestures and, you know, verbally abusing him very quietly. So he couldn't hear us. He's in a high powered vehicle. He wouldn't have done anyway. But he, he's, and then, you know, he played that game where you kind of slap your brakes on and then speed up and slap your brakes. So again, he was trying to goad us into some kind of reaction. But being cool cats and cool customers, Earl and I, we, we didn't respond to this. We, we didn't play the game. The sad thing is at the end of the Woodhead Pass, there's a set of traffic lights where when on red, I don't know whether it's the same in the States, but when on red or around the world, on red, you have to stop. Now, what <laughs> happened right? was, yeah, and this was the problem. I'll we make a note of that, Chinch, thanks. Watching these lights with this hot head in front of us and the lights turn red and surprisingly, he stopped. So then, clearly, we were behind him. We had to stop behind him. Now, he then got out of his vehicle, went to the boot of his car, got a crowbar out no, of the boot. No, he didn't. Of his, seriously, got a crowbar. How, why has it taken this long to tell this? I have no idea. Story? Your and stories are normally dreadful. This one's quite I know. good. But he's, so At least he, we know now why Chinch's face looks like it does. Oh, no, hang on. <laughs> hang on a minute. That's what the paramedics said. Did your face look like that before he took a crowbar to it? But no, no, no. He, so he comes over. I think he's done this kind of thing before because he taps coolly on my window with his crowbar. I foolishly, being a, a, a well-thinking man, wind my window down <laughs> to maybe talk him round. He, he reaches in, grabs the car keys, pulls them out of the ignition. And I'm not sure what he was going to do next. But then he says, hang on a minute, Andy Hinchcliffe and Earl Barrett. And he said Andy Hinchcliffe first. He definitely said Andy Hinchcliffe first. <laughs> and from that point on, he was our best friend. And he said he'd been watching football a long time. We were not only great defenders, but I could deliver a decent throw in and corner. And then he started, I was only joking. I was only jo He wasn't only joking. He would have smashed my car in. That larder would not have recovered from the battering he was going to give it with his crowbar. But my celebrity, and maybe a bit of Earl's as well, saved the day, placated him. He realized how wonderful we were, what great sportsmen and what great role models we were, probably for his kids, if he had any, God forbid. And he, he just sloped back to his car, put his crowbar in the boot, and merrily drove off, beeping his horn. I, I would not be here unless I was the amazing footballer and celebrity that I was, because that basically, that day, saved my life. That is an... How have you taken nearly 200 episodes I don't episodes know. I didn't think it was story. a story. I didn't think it was a story that... I don't know how many kids or what our, what our dynamic is for who listens to this podcast. It's not a pleasant... It is a pleasant story eventually, but it's, it's threatening and dark and brooding, isn't it? And the, and the surprise for you, Chinch, is that that man is here tonight. <laughs> yes. Welcome back. Crowbar Dave. Crowbar Dave. It's one of those situations, I'm quite mouthy in my, and I do get very impatient when I drive. Uh, and I do, you know, give people, not, not, I don't make hands, I don't. I just say, do you flip the bird? Bread. Like, that's really bad driving, sir. Stuff like that. But I never, I never want to be kind of, you know, drawn up and somebody come up to me and say, what did you actually say? I'd, I'd clearly just chicken out. But why? I wound it. He tapped on the window with a crowbar and I wound the window down and said, yes, can I help you? <laughs> what, what can I help him with? What can I, he didn't want an autograph, but eventually I didn't give him an autograph. I should have done that. That would have made it even better. He'd have probably driven us home if I'd have done that. But just imagine how horribly wrong my face could have looked even worse. 
there are many, many morals to that tale, Chinch, but the one that everybody should remember is that when the traffic lights are red, that means stop. I don't know whether it does in every country, Hugh. I'm just guessing. <laughs> that, is a, that is a high point for Soccer Stories. Seriously. Rory's story last week about playing football with Lee Sharp. Chinch this week being threatened with a crowbar. There's so much room for this podcast still to grow. Uh, Chinch, thank you very much indeed. Uh, at this point, just before we sign off, uh, we have a small announcement to make. Um, and uh, I usually at this point say, keep your correspondence coming to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. There is a very special reason for doing that for the next couple of weeks, because probably in two weeks' time, we haven't yet decided, but most likely in two weeks' time, we will be having a special SPM Live, it's not live, show, which is an episode dedicated to you, the listener. While we are all in lockdown, and we are not necessarily pinning down the time because we're not quite sure how long we're going to be in lockdown for, but while we are in lockdown, we are going to be having a set-piece menu live, it's not live show, where we welcome you to our Zoom chat. So if you would like to be involved, and there are many hoops to jump through, the first one is to send an email to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. We will have to limit numbers. We will have to be very strict on how we welcome you to our chat, but still, we are welcoming at least some of you. And if you would like to be considered for our SPM live, it's not live, episode in a couple of weeks' time, probably, uh, then send an email to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. That's setpiecemenu at gmail.com. In advance, thank you. Also in advance, be warned, we're particularly ugly to look at. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Stephen, Andy and Rory and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another set piece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. And we didn't have to do something to make sure that we don't get sort of some sort of prankster in, who, like those people who ring up, ring up phone-ins on the radio and just, just call other people When listeners become viewers, do you feel they'll be disappointed with what they see? Absolutely. Yeah. Seriously? Yeah. Our hair, our hair, it's getting worse and worse, isn't it? We should make an effort with the presentation. Like our, our, each of our individual presentations. Dickie Bowes, Dickie Bowes, full formal At wear. Least. And we will be, yes, we'll be, to, to answer your question, Rory, will be very strict on operating what they have on Zoom, which is a waiting room. So anybody who tries to get in and is not on the list will not be getting in. Do we need some sort of set-piece menu virtual background? Oh, we can, can we do that? I know we yeah, can do so. virtual backgrounds, but can we generate them ourselves? Yeah, I think so. I think we should at least have some sort of pastoral scene behind us. Yes. Or maybe do, like um, a, a greasy spoon cafe. Do, uh, do, buffaloes, least... do, do, do buffaloes get priority treatment or not? That all depends on how many people uh, oh, right. try, uh, attempt to subscribe to this chinch. Because if, frankly, 100 people want to come in and 10 of them are buffaloes, probably have a capacity of 10. Our backdrop could be each be our, our, our preferred empty football stadium. <laughs> we will be operating at neutral venues in our SPM live. It's not live.